0: Hello, and welcome to this episode of My 2020. As we look back on this historic year, each of us has had our own unique experience. For too many, this has been a difficult year, losing loved ones or losing their jobs and businesses. For others, it's meant a sense of displacement. Some of us have been lucky and remained healthy and in employment, but still struggled with drastic changes to how we go about our day-to-day lives. This is true for my guest today. He's one of the world's most established authorities on Middle East arts, while also being an important commentator on societal changes in the region and beyond. He's also a scholar, having taught at a number of institutions, including Yale and Georgetown universities. He's currently visiting senior lecturer in the art history and fine arts department at the American University in Paris. I'm delighted to welcome Sultan Saud Al-Qasimi. Hello, Sultan.
1: Hi, Mina. Thanks for having me.
0: Thank you so much for joining us. So what a year it has been. Tell me how COVID-19 changed your life.
1: Oh, wow. What a question. I mean, how much time do we have? <laughs> I think, as you said, COVID-19 changed everybody's lives drastically. Not too many to the better, I should say. But in my case, COVID-19, I think, it allowed me to reassess my priorities in life. It did displace me, so when I found out that this was happening, I was in Boston, teaching at Boston College, and I had to fly back to the UAE and continue teaching the class uh, online. So there was the physical displacement. There was the emotional displacement. I was at home for 155 days, not leaving home at all. Uh, Obviously, spending time with my mother was very good for me, good for the soul, I should say but also spending time away from friends and other family members was very difficult. There is also this isolation from greater society. You're not interacting with people. I am someone who is very social. As you know, I I meet people, I interview people. So there was the emotional isolation. There was the physical and geographic dislocation. So all these things that I think had an impact that is undeniable. However, I must say that, this experience has also had a bright side to it. I am working on two architecture books that are out in the summer of 2021. And if it wasn't for the confinement, I would not have read and reread and reread the manuscript over and over and over and not have found so many mistakes and so many oversights and so many uh, small things that I needed to update. For instance, Mina. I was looking for biographies of, of architects. I was looking for photos. And because I was confined at home, I had more time to dive into LinkedIn and Facebook and other social media and go, go into the deep web, if you will, to find biographies of architects who have names that are very generic. But I was able to find them because I kept, I kept knowing, I kept digging into that until I found... Every, almost everything I need.
0: I want to um, unpack some of that, including this idea of actually making time for what's necessary. You would have had to do that research, but it would have felt impossible with all these distractions. So did, did this period of time make you more focused?
1: Certainly, Mina. I mean, you, you know me, I spend hours each day meeting with people, talking with people. But the reality, when you have eight to 10 hours extra in your day, you really spend time in, um, I know, dissecting and looking into what you've done and looking into your work. I have two things I want to say. There was the reading aspect, so reading was a big part, reading my manuscript, but also reading books. I went over 20 books. I read 20 books, and some books I had reread, so I was very happy. But the other thing, Nina, which was very interesting, is sitting down to write my journal. Every day, the journal entry, uh, I realized over the past few years revolved around what I had done rather than who I am. And so the journal entry might have been, I visited Mina uh, al-Urabi at the national, and we discussed uh, certain matters. And then I drove to Emirates palace and met my old friend and we had a coffee. And so it was the diary entries or the journal entries revolved around what I had done rather than what I thought or what I, or who I am. And so because the, the journal entry would have been, I sat on the computer, full stop. <laughs> I, had to, I had to write things about, you know, about, about, I had to think about what to write. I thought to myself, well, this is something that concerns me. I am worried about such and such. It turns out I really do like this book. And this is why I like this book. So had I been writing my journal entry last year, I, the, the entry would have been, I read 1984, mm-hmm. full stop. But now I say, well, these are the things that I enjoyed about the book. And so it, it was a very reflective process, which I, which I feel I'm going to take with me going forward into 2021 and beyond.
0: Right. So you just answered one of my questions, which was, what have you learned? But also, what will you take away from that experience? So one is that extra reflection um, and thinking about what actually is impacting you rather than just what you're doing, but what, you're, what resonates with you. What else have you learned?
1: I learned to enjoy our garden, Nina. I, I never thought I would be a garden person, but I just enjoy endless hours of walking around trees and admiring them and actually touching the leaves and touching the trunk and touching the branches is something that I never thought about. It was always a matter of driving next to the trees and, and seeing them with my eyes and almost not, almost uh, looking at them as though they're some kind of background uh Elevator music, if you wish. It was the same sort of idea. But now I really invest myself in learning about uh, local trees and local fauna, local plants. I even uh, tell my mom, how come we don't have uh, a Samra tree? So I've I've been on the case of the Samra tree for the past few weeks. And my mom has bought three trees for us. So I'm so excited about these trees arriving. And so all these things that I didn't think I'd enjoy, I never thought I would enjoy spending three hours in the garden on my own. And not going out every day. I don't think I can stay 155 days, but I can stay, I, I think I can stay for a couple of days at home and not venture out.
0: So why did you decide to self-isolate for 155 days?
1: First of all, I live with my mother who's in her 70s. And so she's in the high-risk category. And uh, I had to be very mindful of her health and not be selfish. And then also, I think the fact that I had gotten so deep into working on the books that I didn't want to break the momentum. I feared that had I gone out, then one day would drag the other, and then I'd start going out too often. And uh, I'm really, really grateful for this time that I spent at home. And uh, I only really left home when I had to go buy clothes to go teach in France. So I went to France for a couple of months to teach this semester, and I had to go buy clothes because all my clothes are in Boston.
0: So I want to talk about, about that trip to Paris. But first, I wanted to ask you, what was the hardest part of the 155 days of isolation?
1: Wow. I really think it was uh, some kind of physical contact because I'm a hugger. I hug people. You know, I shake hands. I hug. I, I just, I'm a person who enjoys the, the, the company in a room, but I also enjoy, um, I don't know, enjoy being with people. Uh, And this is something that, you know, being alone for so long, is so difficult. And I really think, Mina, that there was a fear element. At one point in time, there was a fear element that was so real that we did not know how far this would go. Remember the first few days, even the first few weeks of this virus, we almost forgot about them now, but you really don't know. There was all these horror stories of someone going out once and coming back and giving the elderly mother the virus. And then the mother passes away and then they regret it. And I don't know if it was real or these stories were fiction, but they were were truly horrific. And this was the closest thing I came to feeling for my life in the UAE. The UAE is a very safe country. I never felt afraid in the UAE before confinement or before COVID. And so this was for the first time I related to fear being in the UAE, and hopefully it's the last time, because it is a very safe country, but this was actual genuine fear to the extent, Nina, that I didn't allow anyone from my siblings to visit my mom, that I, I trusted myself. I knew that I wasn't going out, but I didn't know if my siblings and my nephews and my nieces were meeting friends, and if they would come and see my mom and hug her or give her a kiss, and then something would happen.
0: So this idea, I think, also the fear of uncertainty and kind of this drastic threat that, like you said, we're fortunate in the UAE—you don't really feel that. So suddenly it was there. That's that's a very interesting way of encapsulating it. Now, of course, you said you broke your self-isolation because you had to prepare to go to Paris, and so you know, Paris—you were there to teach. Uh, It's where you had studied also. So. Tell me about, first of all, that travel, the first time you travel after this long period of time at home, but also the experience of being at university and having that human interaction with students that unfortunately you're not enjoying as we speak now.
1: Going on a plane after about 160 days of confinement or very short outings was quite an experience. As you know, the airports were uh, completely empty, I didn't know if France would allow me in as a UAE citizen in those days it was almost impossible for non-EU citizens to travel into the EU but I managed to uh, travel in because I was from one of the categories that the French allowed in which was educator and it was it was quite uh, it was quite an adventure because the educator category was only added a few days before my travel plan so I was really happy that happened um, of course, the plane, Emirates, is a very safe airline. They they disinfect the seats. I felt very comfortable being on an Emirates flight. To be honest, I don't think I would have traveled had it been in one of some other airline. And also, uh, landing in France was quite surreal because I was used to Charles de Gaulle being the super busy airport and seeing it with almost no one except passengers from our plane was also surreal, otherworldly, I should say. Uh, Finally, being in Paris, uh, Mina, was such a great experience. Uh, I mean, Paris was booming September 2020 uh, and even October 2020, which is maybe why we went back into confinement by the end of October. And uh, being with the students in my alma mater, knowing that I sat on these very seats about 25 years ago, was also a surreal experience that in these very classrooms I was a student uh, and now I am one of the teachers, one of the instructors. I am a person of certain degree of authority. I never thought I would be one of those individuals. And so that was quite nice, I think. And then we went online. Uh, and going online, obviously, was a very, very different experience because I was very immersed with the students. We, I took them out to meet artists. We went to visit museums. We, we shared meals, of course, outdoors. And being in Paris in the fall, Mina, is just the most beautiful thing you can wish upon anybody on this planet. So the greatest feeling in the world is walking down the Quai d'Orsay or Quai Albert Premier and just enjoying the fall breeze with the orange-colored tree leaves and the smell of the sand and even the noise of the cars. Uh, all that just made it such a beautiful experience. Even these five, uh, these seven to eight weeks uh, is something I would treasure forever.
0: You've moved online now and teaching and trying to create that connection with students. Exactly as you said, I mean, you were going to visit museums, exhibits, sharing meals. That's gone. How do you still create that hu- in human a connection, even though it's online. And of course, you've been well known to make many, many friends um, and people feel they know you because of your online persona. So this isn't new to you as such.
1: Mina, that's a great point. It's, it is impossible. We have to admit it's impossible to recreate the classroom environment, but you, you could go very, very close to that if you empower the students. So at Yale, when I was there, um, they told me that the best classes are the ones where the teacher speaks the least. So if you had an hour and a half of teaching, you shouldn't speak for more than 10 minutes or an hour and a half class. You should speak for less than 10 minutes and you let the students lead the discussion. So what I do in my class, the students present a song and then we have readings and each student leads a part of the reading. Uh, Then we put up artworks on the, 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 the screen and the students analyze the artwork. And then finally, I have a guest speaker and the students interrogate the guest speaker. I've had experts from Christie's, from France-Bancatre, from Centre Pompidou, and so they come in and they give us a tour of their institution and it's online, but I really do try to make a point of not speaking too much, and when the students speak, uh, you notice that they are more engaged. You notice that they are uh, listening to each other, correcting each other, because if the teacher is the one who's leading, then they might have reservations about correcting the teacher or, or saying something back. But if it's another student, they ha- they're much more confident because they feel they're from the same level. So the best thing to do is manage the discussion rather than lead the discussion.
0: That's great. I, I love the idea of managing a discussion rather than leading. Now, I want to ask you about art um, and and how the art scene has been impacted by COVID-19 generally, but also this in-person experience and this digital experience. Um, I was recently moderating a panel where the director of the Hermitage Museum in Russia, uh, Mikhail Petrovsky, was speaking. And he said, art is the medicine we need to recover from COVID-19. And I thought that was beautiful, um, because I do think it's true. We need to see beauty to help us get through hardship. So, How has art been impacted by COVID-19 and how we experience art changed?
1: Oh man, COVID-19 was the ultimate equalizer. That one of the things that the greatest museums in the world had over the Middle Eastern museums is this giant fund that they have that they can go and they can purchase, they can go and they can have the grand openings and they can, they, they can host you at the Met and the Tate and the, uh, and the Louvre. But when, when, when COVID came in, all these giant monolith institutions uh, were had to go online. So really there was almost, how do you say, a level playing field between these institutions uh, in the West and the institutions in the Middle East. Because no one can visit and everything's online. And guess what? Online is fair game. It doesn't matter how many hundreds of millions of dollars you have in the endowment. You can create an excellent online virtual experience with very little money, as we have. And so all you need to do is come up with great ideas, come up with creative um, and innovative ways of attracting people. So that is one thing I think that COVID did. It equalized the le- the playing field between the Middle Eastern museums and Western museums. That was one. Number two, how can you personalize the art experience for people? Because previously museums were just open fairgrounds and you just walk around everywhere you go. Now they had to tailor it. Now they had to customize it. Now they had to think of maybe people want an experience that is customizable. Maybe people wanted um, coloring books, which we also offered during COVID. So I think that was very important. Uh, the other thing, uh, Mina, that was really great about confinement excellent excellent opportunity it offered to the Middle East is documenting artists. We've had a series, dozens and dozens of interviews with artists and recorded panels with with scholars and artists and historians that we did not have before. So all the talks that were we've done 50, I've launched myself 50. 50 talks 50 discussions with leading artists from Iraq and Morocco and Syria and Lebanon and all over the world and I I tell you I found I found ways to make things happen that I didn't think I would be able to apparently zoom isn't allowed in Syria but we got to make it work I have no idea how so all these things we just it was like were, we were blessed it was like something happened that allowed us to contact artists all over the world in Khartoum the same thing with Khartoum, keep in mind Khartoum is under sanctions, Syria is under sanctions. and so. But we were able to reach out to artists. I feel like if I try to reach out to politicians, it wouldn't work. But with artists, it worked it's work because there is this positive energy around the arts world, I think. Same thing happened in Saudi, Arabia. same thing happened in Lebanon. All these events took place and these are recorded interviews, Mina, that we can refer to going forward. Had it not been for the confinement none of this material on Arab and Middle Eastern North African art would have made it onto the internet. So the internet is much more richer in terms of Arab art content because of COVID-19.
0: It's so interesting because I was going to ask you about the cultural list that list that you launched. As you said, I hadn't kept tally of the number, but 50 such events. And in a way, it allowed people who before would never have such access to actually listen in, to be part of this community. So this idea of building communities online um, and trying to break the isolation that COVID-19 imposed through online interaction... Um, Tell me how, what you've learned from that and what you will keep, even, inshallah, when we get through this pandemic, what you'll keep from that and what you think people should learn from that experience.
1: I mean, there was a spirit that formed around the cultural majlis that I was, I was astounded at this. You had a group of men and women who were alone, but when the majlis came, they would just tune in and they had no obligation to attend. And, and they just tuned in because they saw faces that were familiar. And I, and I see them on the chat, you know, saying hello to each other. It's nice to see you. You look, be- you look nice today. I like your outfit. And so there was the spirit that formed around individuals. And you know, Mina, in the, in, the, in the 10 or 15 minutes before and after each Majlis talk, th- there was a discussion that was so lively that I recorded, but I haven't released uh, because this is a private discussion that w- the, it wasn't meant to be released, but I have it saved. And for instance, I had this amazing artist called Hind Nasser who is a Jordanian artist, and she's a mother of uh, one of my dear friends in Jordan. In the 15 minutes before, all these elderly Jordanian women who are her friends joined, and they had never been online before. And they started saying, hello, Um Nasr, it's so nice to see you. Congratulations on your son's promotion. It's so nice to know that your niece is doing so well in her job. And I just didn't want to stop that discussion. People wanted to see each other, and because of these platforms, we were able to see each other and talk with each other, and the Iraqis all over the world. And I remember, especially when May Muzaffar, an Iraqi historian based in Amman, when she spoke, we had people join from California, from Illinois. We had people join from France, from, from, from inside Iraq, from the UK, especially from the Emirates. Iraqis that had spent the 1960s and 70s together, and they reconnected online for that just 60 minutes of bliss that we were able to just recreate a little bit of Baghdad in the 1960s that I felt was so special as an observer. And I was so humbled that I was given this opportunity to allow these networks to reconnect, albeit very, very briefly.
0: It's true. That moment, I was actually there for the May Muldaffar uh, Cultural Majlis. And you're right. You, for a moment, you forgot you were even online because it was it was genuine. And there was that that moment that people came together. Sultan, I'm not sure many people know, but your birthday is on the 1st of January. So while the world gets ready for a new year, you get ready for your own personal year. So tell I get me, older. <laughs> you get older and wiser. Um But can I ask you, on the 1st of January 2021, what are you most looking forward to? And also, what do you hope, looking forward, and as the world emerges from this pandemic, what do you hope could be a source of inspiration or a source of improvement in our world?
1: Uh, Mina, I'm an eternal optimist. I always think that tomorrow is better. I always think that 2021 will be better than 2020. And I don't even hate this year. Like I know many people hate 2020, but I don't hate it I realized this is part of our human experience. And I think it was a long a long time coming. We need to treat the earth better. We need to treat each other better. And I think that we better start doing that. And hopefully 2021 will be a year where we take these steps in order to improve lives for each other. And so uh, I th- I'm looking forward to all the adventures I'll have, whether they're online or whether they're in person. I'll be teaching at two universities in 2021 uh, online simultaneously, so that's going to be exciting. I go to back to Boston. Our exhibition that had paused uh, because of confinement restarts from January 2021, so that's also going to be very exciting. I have two architecture books, a poetry book, a modern art on in the Arabian Peninsula book, so there's four books coming out next year, so I'm excited about all these projects it's going to be a great year, and I think that uh, we're very blessed being here in the UAE for all the opportunities that we have. There's so much going on. I'm so excited to have our Dubai hopefully back, exhibitions in Art Jamil, uh, hopefully very safely, but in-person meetings that I expect to restart now, thanks to uh, what seems to be genuine medical discoveries that will hopefully by in the first six months of 2021, put an end to this horrible disease that's changed our lives so much. So I think 2021 is going to be a wonderful year. I'm looking forward to eating healthier. I'm looking forward to exercising more. I'm looking forward to reading more. I'm looking forward to being a better person. And I'm not comparing myself to anyone but myself.
0: I want to end on that note, Sultan, but I have to ask you, your decision not to go and teach at Harvard because of 2020 and you wanted to be able to teach in person. Tell me how you came to that decision, but also, is that where you're going to be when you say you'll be in Boston next year?
1: So in the spring of 2021, I will be teaching uh, simultaneously at Boston College and first time. announce this at Sciences Po. Sciences Po is a a French university, so I've never taught at a French university before. I'm very excited. So that will be the first half of 2021. And then, yes, in the fall of 2021, I will be at the Harvard Kennedy Center, where I'm already affiliated, and I'm really excited about teaching the class to graduate-level students after two years of teaching it to undergraduate-level students. And yes, uh, it is Harvard, uh, but the students I will like them as much as I like all my other students. No, no more, no less.
0: You have to like the Yale students most. Our Yale connection dictates Yale being a favorite. Slightly more, at Yale. <laughs> Sultan, thank you so very much for sharing your experience with us. And I wish you all the best for the coming year.
1: Thank you, Mina. All the best to you, The National. And congrats on the rebranding of the newspaper. Uh, I look forward to reading more and more from The National.
0: Thanks, Sultan. Thank you for listening to My2020. I've been your host, Mina Al-Arabi. This podcast was produced by Arthur Edison and Aisha Khan. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the series on your preferred podcasting app. Please also continue to follow our podcasts and reporting on thenationalnews.com.